Morning, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of the show called Handing the Shame Back. I'm delighted to be able to bring this channel to you. And this is dedicated to all the fellow survivors of child sexual abuse out there in New Zealand and across the world. Uh, the aim of this is to share our stories with you so that you don't feel so alone. And underneath the show notes, I will have some information for you so that you can get help as you need to. And I think one of the things that really interests me is being able to say, as we speak, we are handing the shame back. So I'm delighted to welcome very first guest on the show, Todd Portsmouth, who has uh, been a hero in my opinion because when he had the opportunity to talk about his story and share it with the world, it was through a court setting. And good, good on you, Todd, because he chose not to have his voice uh, remain silent or anonymous. So um, welcome to the show, Todd. It's so wonderful that you're here. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real privilege. Awesome. So I, I guess as we launch in, I'm just wanting to check in with you. Our, um, our audience out there won't know perhaps a lot about you. So I'm just wondering if it's possible, Todd, to tell us a little bit of your story. What's led yeah. you to, to this today? No, good ass. Um, yeah, so I, I guess current, currently I'm 44-year-old New Zealand male. Um, I was brought up a small town relationships and uh, married and got divorced and remarried. So I had my mother in my life, obviously. I had my birth father um, that we had to go to court-ordered um, visitations with him and the school holidays and things like that. Um and I had my stepfather, and obviously that side um, that I ended up living with from the age of my mum remarried when I was like four years of age. So, um, and that's kind of where it all kicked off for me. Um, from the age of four through to 15, I was sexually abused by my birth father, um, two of my birth father's mates, and two of his female partners, um, but also my stepfather. So, nowhere for me was safe as a kid growing up. Um, I, I, I struggled big time. Um, a lot of it was sexual orientated, but then there was also a lot of physical violence involved in there as well. Um, there was a lot of beatings. There was a lot of threats made that, you know, if I, if I told anyone, then they'd kill my sister. So, my sister's a year older than me, and we used to have to go to my birth father's together for visitations. Um, and so that threat was real, you know, like I'd already seen what they did to me in terms of um, the hidings and and things. And I guess for me is, you know, I couldn't understand why no one would help me, why why no one would, would step in and do something. Um so nowhere was safe, you know, I wasn't safe at my birth father's, I wasn't safe at home. Um, nighttime was a massive, massive struggle. Um, 
I, I really had a massive fear of the dark, um, which is really ironic because now I'm a, a farmer and I'm up in the dark of the morning to milk the cows and things. <laughs> so I've kind of got over that fear a little bit now. But, um, you know, it's it's still something that's real um, for me with certain triggers. Um, you know, I, I guess it's like anything you become you you become skilled at dealing with what you handed I guess or, or you don't survive it um yeah. and I guess that that's for me is you know I I don't like the word victim um I know that I was um but I prefer to see myself as a survivor because I, I kind of work on the theory that um I've I've got through this and I've got to where I've got by working hard and and by not ever allowing them to dictate as to who I would become. And I guess my strive to be better than what was done to me has got me where I am today. And, um, you know, it, it turned me into an absolute workaholic. Work became my out. That became my my one thing where I was safe. And so as young as nine, nine, ten years old, I was out doing paper runs and milk runs and um, then I'd do um, runs on a milk truck. So to try and avoid being at home, I worked. And then school holidays, I'd be working on farms and things just to limit how often I was at home or had to go to my father's. Um, and that was an awesome avoidance technique that, um, has led me to to be yeah really hard worker now that I, I have to try and um, every day to try and figure out my work life balance because otherwise I'll just keep working um, because that is the one thing that's got me to where I am today so um, I guess leading on to what happened I, I went to the police um, six years ago um, and underwent two eight-hour police um, video interviews. Um, and then nothing really happened, to be fair. Um, I, I remember being pretty distraught after, what, uh, after going through that each time and um, a feeling of pretty much helplessness and alone that, you know, that's it. I, I've done this part and now it's just sit and wait and, and nothing really happened. Um, so that became incredibly hard in, in that aspect, I suppose. But I suppose before 2015, um, I was share milking quite a large farm, 1,500 cows um, in Rangiora down here in Canterbury. And I'd had a cow that had popped her hip out and I had to put this cow down. Um, so it was quite late at night by the time I'd sort of got everything done and then got to her um, to discover what had gone on that, you know, there was no coming back. And so I got my rifle and, and I'd been an avid hunter for years and I shot this cow and um, all of a sudden I was just I remember being on my knees, bawling my eyes out and I hadn't cried. I was 36 years of age and I'd, I'd never cried before in my life. And here I am bawling my eyes out and, um, you know, it's. I, I guess it was one of those things that um, from that point on, the flashback sort of really kicked in and 
And I just said, I didn't know that that's what they were called at the time. I thought I was going absolutely nuts. Um, they were just like videos playing in my head and it brought back a memory of uh, um, discovering a friend when I was at school um, who'd taken his life with a shotgun and then it led on to the stuff that had happened with my my father and his friends and partners and things and it just was continuous. And at that point, I was working 20, 22 hours a day Um I just had to keep working just to try and shut this out and I wasn't able to sleep and um, I ended up going to the doctor and was described as, as having um, severe depression and severe anxiety and PTSD, um, severe PTSD, um, which was awesome, but it didn't tell me anything. It didn't say, well, this is how we fix this or anything. Um, so I actually tried taking my own life Um in October and of, of that same year, and um, sort of life had spiralled quite considerably, I guess, to get to that point, and I just couldn't continue. I didn't want to live anymore, and um, and then at the sort of same time, it culminated with my um, now ex-wife um, admitting to an affair with my worker and her leaving the farm with the kids, and Obviously, my wicker disappeared as well. Um, so I was left short-staffed and running a, a 1,500-cow farm um, while dealing with these flashbacks and PTSD and things. And um, so I, back to the doctors and things I went in, um, I guess that was the turning point for me was how much more am I going to lose before I actually step up and, and confront this fear. And that fear... Um, that big fear, I guess, stemmed back from being a kid that if I tell anyone, they're going to kill me or they're going to kill my sister. And that that was what had held me back all these years. And I was at a point where actually I didn't care. They could come and kill me. Because yeah. at that point, I had nothing left to live about. And that's what got me to talk to the police, I suppose. And, um, and from that point, you know, like um, that in itself was one poignant moment in my life that I remember there's been so free that finally I was able to get these words out of my mouth and say, this is what has gone on. Um, and I remember, you know, extended family members and that saying, you know, we wish we'd have known. We didn't know. And I remember just being shocked going, how could you not know? Like, how could you not pick up on these things that that's not right, you know? And But no one did. Um, doctors didn't, you know, like... Um, I got stabbed by my own mother and my thumb where I ended up stitching my own thumb up. Um, black eyes and bruises and things and making up stories that had walked into to door handle and just dumb stuff like that to sort of cover up so no one could say that I'd told them that this is what had happened because they'd do something to my sister, you know, and that's that was probably, for me, being able to say those words and know that, you know, my sister was in a good place and she was safe where she was. And I'm okay, you know, I'm okay with it now. And um, you got to remember through all that, when this stuff's happening to you and is ingrained in you as young as four right through, that stays with you. And these people were, I remember them being big, you know, they were big, strong men, um, the women weren't little women either. Um, 
fear that I had was baseball. Um, and once I sort of got to realise that, I felt a lot more secure and safe within myself. Um, so you, you, you've yeah, raised I, I guess an, that's real, an interest. Yeah, you've you've raised some really interesting things, Todd, and and good on you because in the speaking of this and the recounting of this, although it will trigger us because that's what happens. Um, the good news is we understand what that is now, and we understand how uh, the trauma still sits with us. The body never forgets, does it? So, but you know. Thinking about you not being able to tell anyone or the fact that no one could see what was happening, I totally understand what you're saying. And I guess my my thing is this. If you put a child and an adult in front of concerned people, guess who the adult or the concerned people will always believe? Hmm. It's yeah, never going, going to be the child. It's, it's not going to be the child. No, it's not. And and that's the sad reality of it is, um, you know, like, I, I guess as adults, um, our purpose on here is to keep our young people safe and to keep them protected. I'm sure anyone who's been a, a victim of this type of thing before as, as adults, I guess we become more hyper vigilant around that sort of stuff. We yes. we pick up on things a lot easier than a lot of people. And you know, like my my wife jokes with me all the time that I'm Mr. Neighborhood Watch because I, I just notice everything that's going on around me. Um yeah. right down to like if we go to a school event or a meeting, I always know where the exits are and I never sit with my back to them as such. I'll always position myself that I know how to get out of that room. And she asked me, like, why are you so particular about where we sit and stuff? And I said, oh, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. And it wasn't until working through that that that's, that I realised, actually, I do do this, and this you is do. why I do this. Um, and it, it's, I guess that's, that's the key to it, I suppose, is the more people talk about this sort of stuff, the more people are going to be vigilant around it and realise these are the triggers, you know, like as kids, we're manipulated, we're um, coerced into things that, into ways of things that it becomes normal because it's happening so regularly to yes. such a little mind that that mind yeah. hasn't worked out that, hey, this is, this is wrong, this is bad, until when it is, the fear that's there... You're, you're already a prisoner of your own self because it's already happened and you know that you start believing the lies you're told that no adult is going to believe you. And no. sadly, a lot of adults don't believe a kid that says something. And no. whereas if they're picked up on that much sooner, that's years of trauma that a child or young person could be saved to not have to go through and endure. So when they become adults, they're not as hurt. You know, hurt people hurt people. And if we pick up on this stuff sooner, it's not going to have as big an effect on them as an adult later on, you know. Um, there's a lot of sick, twisted people out there that have no shame and no fear of hurting children and doing this no. sort of thing. No, and I think there's quite a, a large number in our society because when you consider it, the police um, that I have been speaking to tell me 
the numbers are as high as one in three, and I'm talking girls as well and boys, uh, you know, and, and the reality is, Todd, we all know people. But for every, every survivor like us out there, we also, we have to account for these, a certain amount of abusers out there. And those numbers aren't getting smaller. No, no, they're not. And, no. you know, one in three, just, just to reiterate that, one in three is, is huge, isn't it? You know, like... Yep. Um, one in three look, survivors. I, I know many, many people that have been abused. Um, you know, I've... I've experienced it even with my own daughters in terms of um, as, as teenagers, you know, or young adults going into the wide world and putting themselves in, or find themselves in situations that things happen that, you know, people aren't adhering to no means no. And, you know, and they're very aware of what's going on with me and they're quite vigilant around that sort of thing themselves, I suppose. Um would, would be the word to, to use. Um, yet they've experienced it to some degrees. And as a parent who is so anti this stuff, it is one of the hardest things to deal with because especially as a dad, um, I know what I wanted to do. And yes. um, but I had to make sure that we did it by the book, you know, and then, but they've still gone through that, you know, they've still had to endure that. And that's not right. You know, that's no. nobody should be subjected to that. No. But and one in three, I, you know, is huge. That's huge. And that's just one report. Look, there's many that are a lot more conservative. But you and I both know there's, there's a lot of us out there and we need to kind of have more of a community where there's support for fellow survivors because we know exactly what we're talking about when we say, oh, I had a horrible flashback the other day and I couldn't relax after that. Or um, I saw someone coming towards me and it just reminded me of, you know, my father or my yep. uncle or, you know, and, and those sorts of things, the, the specific things that occur that fellow survivors, we instantly, we just get like that. Because yep. we we understand we've been through, and I just love to see more support for our fellow survivors out there. Because you know what we all have in common? We're brave. We've found the courage to survive this. So, Todd, what, one question to you: What what do you think has yep. helped you? What what's helped you? Once you recognise what had happened, um, I guess. Look, it's actually. Um, I, I underwent a lot of a lot of therapy, um, so I guess this will sound really stupid, but it's actually talking. Talking yes. about it is the one key thing I think that has helped me the most. It, you know, I don't want people to treat me any different or special or, you know, wrap me in cotton wool because that's not who I am. Some people, definitely, that's what they need to get through this. But I'm, I'm not that person, you know. I'm, I'm an ace as an ace of spades to spade. I'll tell it how it is. Um, 
I'm certainly watching my language for this this podcast. To, um, I'd use <laughs> a lot hard, say whatever you like. <laughs> I, I would use a lot stronger language in regards to a lot of it. But um, I, I guess for me it is, it's been talking about it, you know, it's like just what you touched on a couple of minutes ago is about being triggered and, and flashbacks and things like that. Um, that is one of the most incredibly tough things to get through. Um, and just when you think you've got it all sorted and actually I'm on control of this, boom, you will get slapped silly and yeah. <laughs> you're again and you're like, what? I thought I'd dealt with this. Yes. Um, and it's little things, you know, it can be just a smell, a certain yeah. touch or a noise can just trigger you and, and then boom, the flashbacks will begin again. Yeah. And I guess for me, um, Working through it was, A, was talking to fellow survivors. Um, you know, Tamara was huge, huge for me um, because she was probably the first person I talked to that got it, who has been through it herself. Um, and then there's the likes of yourself and, and your own story, which, man, is incredible anyway. Um, you know, and, and all of a sudden you start realising, hey, I'm not alone here, like, I'm not the only person this has happened to. And if these people can get through it, so can I. And it's it's not easy. That's the first thing I'll say is it's not easy. It's one of the toughest battles you'll face. And But I would encourage anyone out there that this has happened to um, just to talk. You know, you don't have to go to the police as such, but to start talking, start sharing that this has happened. Because mm-hmm. when we find our voice, and we use our voice, we take the power away from yes. the people that did these things to us and we hand all that power back to ourselves all of a sudden because this is the thing when you're abused sexually or even with sexual violence, the fear that is created in that is de- designed to silence us. It's designed to take away our voice and it's the one thing if we use our voice, they can't stop it. They can't do anything. And they don't want us using our voice because by doing that, it outs them. And yes. Yes. I guess to answer your question to me, that has honestly been it, has been actually opening my mouth and getting these words out because by doing that, not only has it helped me, but it's helped others, you know. And look, male we don't talk enough anyway um men generally deal with things internally and we don't generally go around and just say oh you know look this is what happened to me and i get it you know like look i i felt like i'd lost a lot of my masculinity um i really struggled with who i was who am i and how how do i live in this world that's dominated that men are meant to be strong and tough and not scared of anything and man i was scared of the dark you know and yeah. The dark, like it's, it's nothing. It's just empty blackness. But I was absolutely freaked of it because of what had occurred happened in, in the, the dark. dark. Yes, that's why for me talking brings it out into the light. You know, it is out there where it's dealt with, and people can take it as it is. You know that that answer your question. I hope that's so. that's so powerful. And thank you so much because I think for for some of our audience out there. Um, they're, they're potentially struggling to come to terms with what's happened to them at all, mm. let alone finding the courage to speak. And I totally agree with you. I think 
it doesn't have to be a therapist to start with. It can be a best mate. It can be a neighbor. It's just getting the words out. And, yep. and I think that that does take some of the, the, the pressure and the weight off. The interesting thing is, of course, and I realize this has been your experience as well, is that sometimes, Todd, people don't want to talk about this. And I don't mean fellow survivors. I mean people that you speak to. So I asked a a buddy of mine, Scott, one day and said, Scott, why do people find, why do people want me to shut up about child sexual abuse? And he said, gee, it's because they're uncomfortable. Yep. But you know what, Todd, being uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not happening. (laughs) <laughs> no, and, and this is the thing is, you know, for people to be able to talk, I mean, I'd encourage those out there who might listen to this or watch this video, if you have a have a friend or a family member or, or just anyone who, who says, you know, this is what's occurred to me, you don't have to know the words to say. You don't have to do anything. Just listen. Just listen and be there for them because – that's one of the most incredibly hard things is getting those words out. And when they start coming out, they generally don't want to stop. And yeah. <laughs> you're going to see a lot of emotion, you know, you're yeah. going to see a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of anger and frustration. Yeah. And you don't have to know how to fix that. You don't have to be able to do anything. except Just be there for them and let them get it out because it's one of the hardest things to do. And, you know, it certainly for me was, you know, it wasn't a therapist. It wasn't the police that I, I actually said it to first. Um, it was just to, to, it was actually my ex-wife that I told it to. Um, and I just had to get the words out. And I think that was the thing was uh, the end of my marriage, I guess, was the guilt that is, is me sharing my heart story after being with her so long as to this is what really went on. To two days later, her walking out the door, I think the guilt of what she was up to was too much for her. But it doesn't matter. Like, it still doesn't matter to me. Is I'm just glad I managed to tell somebody because from that point, you couldn't shut me up. And I wasn't going to be no. silent. <laughs> I know, right? No. I, no. I wasn't, but I wasn't going to be silenced about it. No. And it's something that... You know, we we all experience that uncomfortableness that people face when we talk about it. Um, you know, and I have a different twist on on that slightly. Um, is I think people become very uncomfortable about it. You know, like say for me sharing my story. Um, like my kids know some of what has occurred to me. They don't know everything. Um, and I keep, you know, that was one of the hardest things um, ever is explaining to your children, hey, this is what's happened to me. Um, Because there's actually no help out there for that. There's nothing online as to how to explain this to your kids. There is no one out there who really can offer any advice on it. Um, It is this one area I want to see change in is is hugely in that because I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of people out there that have to explain this to their kids. Yes. But touching on on your thing in terms of uncomfortable, um, so my son, who's 
22 now, 20, 23 actually, um, explaining to him, man, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know whether to look at me. To He was so uncomfortable. And look, I, I don't blame him for that. Um, no. no one wants to hear that about no. their dad or whatever. No. And, and that was still not going into details. It was just... This is a subject he didn't want to to know about because he knows it's bad. Um, anything to do with that is bad, and we don't go near that. Um, whereas I'm like, actually, no, you know, let's talk about this and let's make it normal. Because if we make that normal, that conversation normal, it takes away that that silence as well. Yeah, yep. I, I um, agree with you, and I think there's a there's a difference, and I love what you've said that. You know, Todd, and maybe it's something you'll you'll eventually do or, or we can look at together, but providing some resource online for people like ourselves who have adult children, how do we tell them how do we get those words out and, and keep them safe as well, you know, in the telling? The uncomfortableness, so I'll park that with you because that could be something that starts your, your mind going. But the other thing you raise, you know, when we talk about uncomfortable, I'm not talking about our loved ones. I'm talking about someone that you think might be safe to share this with and they don't want to hear it. And it, to me, Todd, and I'll be interested in your perception of this, it makes me think if they don't want to hear it, then that adds to the silence, which then helps the abusers keep perpetrating, which then adds to the shame that all the survivors feel because they're getting it from people they're trying to tell who don't want to know and people who perpetuate it and see how the cycle continues. Yep, 100%. That's my concern. Yeah. Yep, I, I absolutely agree that that's what you're saying, smack on, is... Um, it is. I mean, and it's hard to know that whether those same people that become uncomfortable around it and don't want to have that conversation, whether something similar has happened to them. Um, you know, everyone's story is different too. You know, like there's, there's hundreds of thousands of survivors out there that have been sexually abused and not one of us is our story the same. You know, it is always different. There's a lot of similarities in what goes on, but the individual trauma is different in all of us yeah. and so therefore you know look I don't I don't know I just know that I've had that conversation with a couple of people who um, weren't family members they were just friends um, and they become really uncomfortable about it and both of those people have then ended up coming to me saying man I didn't want to listen to that but you know what? This happened to me when I was a kid, and this happened, wow. you know. And I got to be that ear sitting there listening to them. And that's why, for me, I guess talking about it is important because that was what released it for them to be able to talk about it. Was he someone talking to them saying, Hey, this happened to me? Um, gave them enough courage to actually be able to say, You know, that made me so uncomfortable because this happened to me. And yes. How cool is that? You know, like that yeah. actually gets them talking about it as well. And um, I I sat in a room about four or five years ago and there was five of us males in that room. Four of us have been sexually abused. Now, no one knew that at the time and that all came out in that room. And that was just through talking and sharing my story 
a little bit of my story with these guys that it eventually came out and I was like far out, you know, like if this is just one group of guys and there's four out of the five of them saying that they've been abused, how many more are out there? You know, like when a figure is, I think for males, they, they bandy around one in four, I think it is. Yeah. Um, I, I think they'll be quite surprised as that figure will be a lot higher because men in general don't go to the police. They don't talk about this, that this has happened um, to, to people. So that figure isn't truly known. Um, and even in women, you know, yeah. one in three three women or females that have been abused, um, that figure in them is probably a lot higher as well because there'll be women who don't say anything to anyone and they don't let on that this has happened. It's interesting because I, I was watching a documentary the other day and it's really, I, I totally agree with what you're saying actually, we don't know because it's the silent endemic, isn't it? It's silence. It's yep. what keeps us quiet. Silence, shame, secrecy. Shame will always win, as we know. But I was watching a documentary the other day with, uh, and it was Professor Loftus, and Professor Loftus is the queen of repressed memories syndrome and don't believe what your memory tells you. And she's done actually a great deal of harm to us and fellow survivors out there because what she's done is basically said any memory you have that isn't um, that that you had repressed for instance I repressed for 16 years okay therefore it can't be true and so the damage that does meaning that other survivors out there like ourselves Todd we then get named and shamed and made to feel even worse because it can't possibly be true. Now, the people who have invested in that are actually people who either have something to hide or I've found out recently that she was also a victim of child sexual abuse. Shock horror. Yeah. But the damage that has been done to so many fellow survivors out there because this repressed memory syndrome um, that happened. And I know when I had my um, police researching all of my story, um, my family used that against me, that whole repressed memory. And so the police were really struggling back then to come up with what was true and what wasn't. But I guess that leads me into a question for you. So I realised recently you've you've had a court case. Are you able to share a little bit about what happened during that period of time for you? Yeah, so um, so obviously after the police interviews, um, they were doing the investigations, um, the, the caseloads, because it's historic, it gets put on the back burner and they deal with current stuff yeah. first. So yeah. depending on how busy they are, it depends how much work they get done. And anyway, my case had sort of stagnated until it reached the hands of a certain, um, I call her detective, but she's a constable detective type thing. Um, yeah. Not entirely sure, but Alana anyway. Um, she was huge, hugely instrumental Um I had nothing but praise for for her and um, 
the work she did, um, ooh, I was emotional to talk about this. Um, she she actually arrested my father. Um, she was really awesome. Um, communication with her was huge. So prior to that, the detective prior to her had said to me, oh, look, you might need to let your employers know that, you know, we're close to making an arrest and, and this will happen quite quickly, so it's best you make them aware. And I was okay. And I'd actually just moved from Thai Happy, where I was stock managing a big place there, to um, Amberley. And I'd only been at the job two weeks and I was all right here. So I plucked up the courage to, to tell the owner that, you know, this is going to court and this is what's happened. And he terminated my contract um, under 90 days because he didn't want any involvement with it. Um, I was like, okay, Whoa. that's I don't know what his what he was afraid of or what he was scared of. Um, so that led me to where I am now. Um, who I have a really supportive owner um, boss here, um, and it's like, mate, you know, if you got to go, you just go. If it's two weeks, three weeks, you do what's right for you. And I was like, cool as. Um, as it turned out. COVID affected us, so it didn't make it to court. Um, it got put off another year and another year. So each time, you know, it finally got to that point, um, nothing happened. But anyway, Alana arrested my father, and that was one thing she said to me was that was the important thing for her is she wanted to be the one that put the cuffs on him, and she wanted to follow it through. She wasn't going to let that case go because she'd seen – from the police's point of view, how let down I'd been by the fact that it had gone through so many hands to get to hers, that when we got to that stage, um, she wanted to be there. Um, so anyway, we went we went to court um, and it was all set down for trial. And then three days before it went to trial, my father changed his not guilty pleas to guilty. Um, but part of that deal was that it was only off of a couple of the charges in relation to one incident. And the reason behind that came out afterwards, which I had a sneaky suspicion that's what it was, but the reality is he was on 20-something charges. 15 of those carried the maximum penalty, I think, which was 15 years from back in those days. Because back when this happened to me, um, there was no such charge as sexual violation of a male. Um, it was called something completely different. Um, but anyway, my father had already spent time in prison um, as a convicted pedophile before other people he'd committed these same crimes oh, to. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is where my story is probably a little bit interesting. Um, so part of that course, well, part of that sentence was for him to get out. Um, so he got sentenced to uh, preventative detention. So the only way he could get out of prison was he had to complete this course, Waimarama course in Christchurch, where part of that is you've got to admit to the, the crimes you've committed. Um, so for these crimes he committed prior, he'd pled not guilty and was found guilty on all these charges. He'd denied it the whole way through that he was being set up and, you know, he'd never done these things, rah, rah, rah. So then he did this course and he'd admitted to, yes, he did do these things to these people, this is, I guess, my my one golden moment. Um, 
was he was an absolute dumbass and he admitted to what he'd done to me. Not all of it, but some of it. What he didn't realise is that meeting, it's all recorded. Part of that, my auntie then contacted me asking if um, I would allow my father to have contact with me because um, he'd done this course and rah 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 and, um, and I was like, no, well, this isn't happening. And a part of her email, she had stated in there that she'd been at this meeting and this is what he has gone on to admit. Um, so I had, I already knew I had a witness to this, that he has said this in front of someone. Um, the police hadn't really done much about that until I said to them, hey, he did this course, here's the email, I've still kept it all these years, where he's admitted this, I forward that on, and they went back, and sure enough, they got from corrections, they got his statement. Um, so he had to... Going through that is... Any evidence that the Crown had, so that's not my lawyer, you don't have your own lawyer, it is a Crown lawyer who takes the case on behalf of the Crown, they're not taking it on behalf of you, they're not there to protect you or do anything like that, they are there basically to get a conviction, um, that's their job. But anyway, they, they took it and they have to then disclose any evidence they have to the defence. And the minute that they saw that, they changed their deal to a plea deal. Now, I wasn't even aware that he could change his plea to guilty before trial. So we were flown to Wellington. I'm, I'm down in Canterbury in Oxford. Um, so we were flown to Wellington where I had to meet with the Crown lawyer. And she explained all this that, you know, there's this deal on the table and, you know, would I accept Rady Rara? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not accepting that. Um, well, this is just an absolute joke. And to do, the detective, Alana's, she was laughing because she said, I told told um, the Crown lawyer Sally that that's what you'd say. Like, you're way stronger than that. You're not going to accept that. Um, and that basically put it, the defence had tried putting it that we had nothing. This is all in my head. Um, and perhaps we should just agree that this isn't going to go anywhere and save, save all this time. And I'm like, no, that's not happening. Um, so then the Crown, she explained to me, look, you know, if we can get him on one charge, that pretty much is going to be the maximum penalty that he's going to get because no matter what he does, because he's already served all this time, he's deemed as being rehabilitated and you cannot rehabilitate the rehabilitated. So he's basically going to get maybe seven, five or seven months home D. That's the maximum you're looking at. And I was like, well, okay, this is bloody stupid if someone had told me this six years ago I don't know if I'd have gone through this journey the same but I was like you know what let's just do it I said at the end of the day let's do it and I said I'm, I'm happy to go to trial um, if, if that's what it takes to get that I don't mind well within we'd hopped on the plane to come back down by the time we'd got back here he'd changed his plea to guilty um, and he didn't just plead guilty to one charge he pleaded guilty to two or three different charges, um, but all relating to that one incident because that was their golden ticket that didn't need any proof or anything. He couldn't get out of that one. Um, so when he'd been arrested, he'd spent 10 months in prison at that point before corrections couldn't hold him and they had to release him. So he was released 
and then he got seven months home D because what happens is they take the prison time off the total sentence, which was two years because it brings it under two years um, because he'd been rehabilitated and 50% for good behaviour and that sort of thing, really guilty plea. Um, you know, it, it alters the sentencing and it ended up that he has to serve seven months home D on top of the 10 months imprisonment that he'd done, which works out I've probably got more in that way than he would have ever got, but it doesn't seem seem a lot. Um, no. But in saying that, um, I didn't really care about the sentencing. Um, that side was irrelevant to me, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because I know you're begging to know this. Um, I got to do my victim impact statement. Um, now, this is something that I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to do it, um, when I wrote my, my statement, I actually did it alone. There was no one else around me. Um, I had tears streaming down my face and I just started writing. And it probably didn't seem to make a lot of sense at the time. Um, and it wasn't until going back and reading it afterwards going, whoa, you know, like this actually come out of my mouth here and I've, I've got this. Um, a couple of little bit of bits I had to change around that I kind of hadn't worded quite right or whatever and got that sorted and you have to be quite PC in regards to it because otherwise like a judge reads it well before it gets to sentencing um, and if your language is too strong um, they don't accept it so in other words I was quite clever and I found a way to say fuck you to him without saying those words um, and, go Todd yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, my wife came with me. Um, my kids wanted to support me in court, and I said no. Um, and I said no because this is a part of my journey that I had to do for me. And my kids have never met my birth father, so they don't know their grandfather. They never, ever will because I have protected them from him. And that was another piece of me saying, I don't want anywhere near this mongrel. Um so I, I did that, and I remember standing there and just shaking, you know, like because I this is the first time I'd seen him in years, and in my head he was this big strong guy, and in reality he was this old weak man yeah. who couldn't even look me in the eye. Yeah. And yeah. When I started speaking, the judge couldn't take her focus off of me. The defense lawyer couldn't she just sat back in her chair and didn't know what to do and she was quite young but I think she was a little bit shocked as to what I was saying and how I was saying it um my cousin was there um basically she came up and stood beside me and I was that focused on what I was doing I forgot she was even there um I had my wife sort of was situated on a bit of an angle so you get the opportunity to do it behind a screen or whatever. I chose not to. Um, I wanted to be able to, to do it. Um, and if I couldn't, my cousin was going to take over reading it for me. Um, but for me, I needed to be able to look him in the eye and tell him, I'm not afraid of you anymore. And this is what you've done. This is the effects it's had on my life. And the effects have been huge, you know, really, yeah, really huge. Oh, God. Wow. But I tell you what, there was Ooh. no greater healing for me than that moment where knowing that 
actually now I have the power back. You can't even look me in the eye and accept that this is the man standing in front of you is that same little boy that you did these things to, yeah. but I'm not a boy anymore. Yeah. Um, so that was quite freeing. And, and the other thing was prior to me doing my victim impact statement, I had, um, when this all went through, I had personally put in an application to have my name suppression removed because when you speak to the police and you take this through court, automatically you are granted name suppression. You actually have to apply to have it removed. You can't just say, hey, I don't want to be named. It has to be removed. Now, in this case, it got a little bit interesting because he's obviously a convicted pedophile. He didn't have name suppression for those cases. But then all of a sudden, that was their defence as they were wanting to protect the victims of his prior offending um, who had completely different names. I'm not going to go into that. Um no. Whereas I share the last same last name as, as him. Um, and, you know, if I'm fine to have my name out there because he's already trashed it prior and he never thought about my name being affected because he'd done these things, why the hell should he be allowed to, to get off it like that? Um, and I guess that, that was, for me, was the one thing I wanted out of it. I wasn't sure I was going to get it because by having it removed it enabled me to do like so what we're doing now and to quite openly say to the judge, you know, my main reason for doing this, A, is so that any other victims of his offending can come forward because it may just trigger them enough to go, hey, you know, he did this to me too. But it also enables me to speak out about yes. um, what's gone on and what's occurred in an open and frank conversation that's so desperately needed in the hopes that it helps someone else. Yeah. Um, because we, you know, we yes. don't get enough of that. But that that was a huge thing. And when that judge said, you know, actually, no, look, the defence's argument is crap. Um, I grant that this is name suppression is removed. It was just this massive weight come off my shoulders. And I was like, wow. I can't believe I've just done this because, you know, it was pretty bad. The Crown crown lawyers wouldn't even help me to do that. No. Um, I had to figure it out for myself. And I was really, look, I'll, I'll give a little plug here for, for the victim advisors. So the victim advisors in court are there to help you um, as a victim to go through that journey. Um, and uh, outstanding, absolutely outstanding. Um, and I was really lucky that I'd built quite a good rapport with these advisors, and, and they taught me through how to do this, and that was the best thing ever. Um, because it enabled me to to get that application in and get it done without expensive lawyers' bills or anything like that. And I had it removed, and now we can talk about it. That is so powerful. And do you know you you actually handed the shame back? Well yep. done, Todd. That's so powerful. Well, um, we we've only got a couple of minutes left, actually. Um, but man, what a story! Well, I, I guess one final question from me, and you've kind of looked at it throughout our conversation, but. How can we help our fellow male survivors out there to find their voice? Yeah, I think, I think. look, even, even doing this is a start. Um, yeah. 
being open and, and having open and frank conversations around this that, you know, um, like I touched on a few times is hurt people, hurt people, you know, and I know for me, um, my trauma affected who I'd become as a man and how I dealt with things as a man and why I reacted certain ways to things like triggers and, and, and things as subconsciously not even knowing this, this is how I was doing things. Um, so, you know, that's where things, I guess, need to change for all of us is just by having these conversations um, helps it become a normal thing. It doesn't have to be a dirty thing. It doesn't have to be a shameful thing. No. Um, you're not going to find a more blokeier bloke than me, you know, like no. <laughs> um, I'm all about manly sort of stuff. Um, you know, it's what I do. Um so there's no shame in it. There's absolutely no shame in no. saying, hey, this happened to me. Um, because you know what? We weren't the ones who dictated that that's what happens. We were little kids, you know, and the, getting your head around the fact that if you're a kid and this happens to you, you're not responsible. You couldn't change it. There's nothing you could do. You know, like I look, I carried shame, a huge shame, like I touched on. My my father was already a convicted pedophile now. I witnessed him doing things to to those particular girls as well, and that was part of the my story, I guess, that when I talked to the police was for years I struggled with the fact that I couldn't help them. I wasn't strong enough to stop them, and I carried that shame on my shoulders. It wasn't my shame to carry. No, it wasn't no. my burden to carry, but I did anyway because that's me. Um, and I think most people in my shoes would have done the same. And that's the reality is we don't talk about this enough to make people realise, hey, you know, this isn't on you. This is on us as a community. It is on us mm -hmm. as a country. And it is on us as a world to actually talk about these things mm -hmm. and say this isn't on um, so the, the shame that never belonged to us, and and that's nah. why we're handing it back. But um, Todd, we're gonna have to leave it there, unfortunately. Stay on the line. Um, I'll I'll stop shortly. But for those of you out there in our audience, um, we're lucky to have had Todd join us today, and and what a brave and wonderful man to come forward and bring his story into the light. Very touched by you, Todd, and it's going to help a lot of people out there. For those of you that are struggling with this and not sure of what to do, there is the Help Foundation at 09623-1700. They have people on the spot ready to listen to you and help support you. Um, we also have, we'll be providing links under this show uh, for where you can contact Todd if you want to have a conversation or myself, there's some places we've got that you can potentially go to. You're not alone out there. We're there yeah. to help. We're there to support. And thank you so much for listening and being part of this. Really appreciate it.